broadcasting live from the phx.fm studio in phoenix arizona it's time for valley business radio spotlighting the valley's best businesses and the people who lead them Hello and welcome to Valley Business Radio, where we tell the stories that traditional media tends to ignore and help connect you to the right people. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian McIntyre, and I'm joined in the studio today by Jenna Biancavilla. She is a wealth manager, the owner of Pearl Capital Management, also the branch manager and a mortgage specialist with Geneva Financial. Welcome, Jenna. Thank you for having me, Adrian. I'm so glad that you're here. We met last year at the uh, Get Phoenix Young Professionals event where I was giving a talk on LinkedIn and you came up to me and said, I wanna be the star student of this new way of doing things online. And we started a conversation and it's been really interesting for me to watch over the past couple of months as you have taken some uh, new approaches to sharing about yourself and your work online. So I'd love to talk about that, but also I really wanna talk about your business. Could you give us a bit of a overview to get us started. So you have these two companies, they're both in financial services. How do you describe your work to people? Well, I like to say it's a holistic approach to people's finances, which sounds a little kitschy, but it's really true because I'm looking at a big picture of their financial portfolio and I'm not leaving anything behind. And we're talking about real estate. We're talking about taxes. We're talking about so much more than what a typical investment advisor would say about your specific account and the investments I manage inside of it and really having tunnel vision at an account or a loan officer, a mortgage broker that's just looking at what's a good mortgage for you. So we're really saying, here's your whole financial portfolio and how is it all going to work well together? And that way you're really not not sacrificing anything by by taking a bad angle on one or a bad approach on one angle of your finances. You know, I'm really interested in this because if we look at macro trends over the past 10 or 15 years, uh, with the rise of technology that allows us to do different kinds of things than we've never been able to do before, one of the top line trends that is changing everything from the products we buy, the services we use, the the experts we rely on is personalization. We have the ability now to do personalization at scale and that's changed the way we do marketing and advertising. It's changed the way we shop. It, you know, it's changed all of these things. And yet, personalization in financial services is still, you know, kind of emerging uh, as an integrated approach that really says, hey, one specialist, one advisor can, in fact, deal with all the different disciplines required to help you with a multifaceted life. What makes your practice different? It's exactly that, that it is completely customized and it is catered to exactly what a client needs and not what's your risk tolerance and you fall into this bucket and you get that investment portfolio and then the technology takes over from there and kind of robo-advisors their portfolio. So Advisors has, have almost been using technology to make things more cookie cutter. So it's been the opposite of the rest of the world, and it's not moving customized. It's moving cookie cutter, and we're going to make ourselves obsolete if we keep doing that. You raise such an interesting point because on the one hand, taking the, the personalization out has allowed for lower 
cost things like index funds. You don't have to pay somebody for their brain power. You simply put your money into a vehicle that's tracking an index of some kind, whether it's the market itself or some you know, aspect of the market. And um, and then it's automated. And that that's positive insofar as their fees are lower and it takes the emotionality out of it, which is always what works against people, no matter how skilled they are of an investor, right? But what you're speaking to is something different, and that's on the design side of how you put together a financial plan, how you select an appropriate set of vehicles for that. Uh, And I'm just fascinated. It's interesting. It's almost like we've gone through this period where technology depersonalized things, and now that relationship is coming back. Some old school advisors would tell you that's always been there. I'm not sure if it's true, though, that it's always been there in the way they designed your asset management strategy. That was, in fact, kind of cookie cutter. I don't know. I'm, this isn't even my field. I'm sitting here on a soapbox. I should ask you, what are your thoughts about what I'm saying? Is this is this fit? Is, is some of it wrong? What do you, what do you want to add? Um, well, going back to one of the first things you said is uh, that the, the technology is going to take the emotions out of it, which isn't necessarily true. My clients are, are dealing with emotional things every single day, and I don't think a robot's going to take emotions out of the decisions you make around your finances. So I really think that's an important piece to have a, a person to call and say, I'm thinking about maybe buying a car or saving for my kid's college education or buying a rental property. And these are emotional decisions because your friends care about what car you drive, but your your in-laws are talking about saving for your kid's college. And, and there's just a lot of different pieces here. And, and a piece of technology is never going to talk through pros and cons and what's best for your personal finances. Uh, so that's why. And what was the second question? I'm sorry. Well, an old school financial advisor would say, oh, well, the relationship is what's always been the case. And that may be true in the way they sold their services, but I'm not sure it's true in the way they designed the 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 actual, you know, asset allocation and portfolio management approach. It probably was, all right, so you're in that category. You get 30% of this and 40 of that and 10 of this or something. Again, I don't know. This is my impression as an outsider. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think you are spot on. Old school advisors are going to say that there's a customized piece, but they're also not using technology and leveraging that well. And clients really do need that, the technology and the customization. And so an old school advisor, there is so many uh, nuances and details of just the process. And if you're not using technology for the process, you're just wasting time on things that are not benefiting the client. Now, you have these two hats and they're integrated in in that you're, you're coming up with solutions to unique situations and you can draw from both. But why don't you characterize for us what happens at Pearl Capital Management? What happens at Geneva Financial? How do you, how do you balance the two roles? So I really do have to take my hat off when I walk into the next company because they are two separate. And as you know, it's a very compliant, regulated industry, um, both of them. And so I do have to keep them completely separate. Uh, So there's my little compliance piece that I've said. Uh, But it's being able to have the knowledge on both sides and being able to look at someone's personal financial situation and say, hey, while we're talking about your investments, you're wasting a heck of a lot of money over there on a mortgage that doesn't make sense for you. So uh, go talk to that lady with a different hat on, which might also be me. Um, 
and and maybe we can make that have you save money over there so that savings can come into your investment account and you have more money overall and your typical mortgage broker or investment advisor aren't looking at both pieces. And so that's how I'm able to to really help someone. You know, it, it is interesting. Uh, on the compliance side, those, those regulations are there for a reason. Uh, they're designed to protect consumers from conflicts of interest and a variety of other reasons why they're there. And yet at the same time, sometimes that, that doesn't always serve somebody's best interest. You know, I think of the traditional uh, uh, kind of banking structure where the investment bank is on one side and has a, you know, a firewall between it and the advisory services, the broker dealer side of the shop. The one side is selling products that the other side has an interest in having them sold. The reality is, is that having that setup has not removed conflicts of interest. Uh, and so I think finding new ways to navigate this that are really aligned with the clients is, of course, the right thing to do. And I know that you, in your work, uh, you're a fiduciary, right? Talk a little bit about that and how that helps deal with some of what has in the past um, not served clients well. Well, let's kind of define the difference between what a fiduciary is and what the old school commission advisor is. So, uh, originally, it was a stockbroker. That was the original type of investment advisor that people think of. And a stockbroker made a commission every time they purchased a new investment. So they have incentives on the commission side to purchase lots of different investments all the time because that's how they make more money. And whether or not they do that isn't the question. It's that their incentive is to make more money by churning accounts is what it's called, making lots of trades. Uh, so that is old school commission style, and the industry is really moving away from that, which is why I decided to start an RIA, which is a registered investment advisor, uh, and that's a fee-only fiduciary. And so the fiduciary really means that your interests are aligned with your client's interests. Uh, and a fee only means we make a flat percentage regardless of how many trades we make. So we really have incentive to make the account balance higher. And that's how we make more money is if we help our clients get more money in their accounts. And so our incentive or our, our interests are aligned with our clients. And, and that's where the fiduciary standard is, is making sure that you're always doing the best thing for your clients. When you decided that that was the path you wanted to follow, did did you have to make some changes to your approach, to your interactions with people? Was there additional training necessary? Uh, I'm getting a sense that th this is a a significant distinction uh, in the in the way advisors structure their own compensation. And I'm just curious what goes into that. Do you have to go and get additional certification? I just have no idea. What do you do to prepare to become this type of fee only fiduciary advisor? So it's going to be more so structurally how you're set up and, and what agencies you're registered with. When I was originally in the industry, I, I was on the stockbroker side of things. So I did have a Series 7, Series 66. That's where I started. And I tried to act like a fiduciary because it just seemed like it was what's right. Um, and it's just the registration and how you're set up. And so you move from being in FINRA land, which is one regulatory body, and now I'm over in, you know, state regulators and SEC land. And you're just dealing with different regulatory bodies that oversee different 
types of the industry. So it's nuances that really don't matter uh, to the average investor. You just want to ask your financial advisor, are you a fiduciary? That's the, the real thing that matters for the average person. And, and why that is, and you said this, but I want to underline it because I think it's really important for people to understand, is that the way your advisors get paid is fundamentally different. If they're getting paid uh, commissions on transactions, their interest is aligned with having you have more transactions. If they're getting paid a percentage of the assets they manage, or if they're getting some sort of a flat monthly fee, some sort of a retainer, however, the, there's different ways of doing that, then they're getting paid for giving you the best advice that produces the best results for you and not pushing product you don't need just because that's how they're going to make their money. I think it's a huge game changer for people to know that they're not going to be sold something just because this particular annuity pays the advisor 7%, but the mutual fund only pays the advisor 3%. You throw all those commissions out the window, and most fee-only advisors are charging somewhere between 1% to 2% per year, no matter what they sell you. And it's it's this peace of mind that you're not being sold products, and you don't have to be on the defense constantly when you're talking to your financial advisor, which is not what you want. Yeah, it's, fun. it's, it's fascinating to me that we ever did it that way, and that actually still happens that way. Um, I'm curious to know if we if we back up a little bit and we look at kind of the evolution of your career and of your expertise, uh, if you look back in time at young Jenna, what was the moment when you kind of started to realize that finance was something that you were interested in that you wanted to devote yourself to? Uh, did that come later in life? Was it early on? Like, how do you describe your backstory? Well, young Jenna wanted to be successful, whatever that meant, when I started college. And I never wanted to depend on anyone else for money. So I wanted to be self-sufficient. So I decided uh, when I was 18 and starting college, that meant being a doctor. That was the, the best profession I could think of. So I started college as a physiology major. That was the blueprint for that was sure. It. it was like, if you want to be independent and have to rely on people, this is how you're going to make the most of your own money. Well, that's all I could think of at 18. Uh, and I started college in that direction, started volunteering in a hospital, and hospitals are really sad. I still volunteer in hospitals, but I realized I couldn't deal with that heartache every single day as my job. So I took a career assessment halfway through college and realized I love solving math problems. I already knew that, but it was just on a piece of paper and that I'm a good people person. And so this kind of career assessment pointed me in this direction. I switched to studying economics and business and tried to get into the finance industry immediately out of college. And meanwhile, I graduated college in 2009, uh, worst jobs market since 1945, and I'm, you know, trying to get into an industry where they are just laying off people in in the, the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. I actually don't know that number. Uh, but, you know, companies like Lehman Brothers are filing bankruptcy. There's all these very successful financial advisors without jobs. And then I didn't realize what a disadvantage I was at being a young female, not only being inexperienced, but also being female and saying, hey, hire me as an inexperienced young female financial advisor. It was very difficult uh, when I was trying to get into the industry. Let's talk about that for a minute because I think there's probably some lessons embedded in that 
time frame that are going to be relevant again someday when the economy melts, if it ever does. Um, and how you navigated through that could have some useful lessons uh, for folks listening, whether that's their career path or not. So you're going to college, University of Arizona, you getting your degree, right, economics and business. And had you started already, did you, how did you begin to build relationships in the field during the time that you were still a student? What was, what was happening in, as your professionalization started to be something you were taking more seriously? It really was just non-paid internships and trying to understand the industry and and watching CNBC all the time and trying to understand what was going on. I was a bit in a college bubble, so I can't say that I was really going the extra mile while I was still in school, but it was the moment when I got out of school that I really was trying hard to get in. And I took, for the first year out of college, I I felt like my degree was worthless because I took another non-paid internship. And I was with a really large financial institution, and it was there that this one guy, this sticks out in my head, he said to me, little girl, just go be a bank teller until you find a husband who will take care of you, along with several other things that people had said. But that one sticks out because I told you I wanted to be a doctor when I started college because I didn't want anyone to have to take care of me. So that was the thing that lit a fire inside me to say, I will prove you wrong. And after that, I did start studying for all of my licenses, and I found got a break, basically, at a, a small financial shop that I called home for seven years where I really learned the industry. But sometimes those negative things, when they hurt in the moment, and I was devastated when people were saying things like that to me in the moment, they were the thing that drove me to be where I am today. Yeah, fueling the fire and the drive. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's horrific, quite frankly, uh, that this kind of stuff still happens. And yet it's probably all too common. I imagine there's a lot of people that can relate. Whether the, the expectations are from parents or professionals, other people in the environment, just the the pull toward mediocrity is so strong. And it's, it's strong for, peop- for some people more than others, for sure. Let's talk for a minute about being a woman in the financial services industry. Um, wh- what's that like? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? What's great about it? But also, what's the battle that you find yourself still fighting on a daily basis to, to, to fulfill on that vision? Uh, Well, starting from zero experience, it was a huge hill that it seemed harder to climb than my male colleagues. Uh, I now feel like I am on the other side of that hill where I'm now dealing with educating older advisors who who do things the way it's always been, and and they kind of look at me like I am not what the average advisor looks like. But that's not my clients. Most of my clients are excited to have someone who looks like them, who looks like their wife, who looks like their daughter, and they're excited to work with me. And every once in a while, I will run into, they're usually single men who feel threatened in some capacity, and they will never be my clients because they just don't feel comfortable with me. And I am at a secure place now where that's okay because, you know, a lot of women don't want a male gynecologist. Like We do this when we're choosing people that are in a very intimate relationship or, or profession towards us. And so I know what I do for people is very intimate. It gets very, very emotional sometimes in our meetings. And if people don't want me as an advisor, I'm at a place where there's a lot of other people who do. Yeah. And isn't it great that I'm a pluralist. I think that there's, I'm not for everyone and, but somebody else is. Um, it's it's fascinating as we watch in you know recent 
events, the reaction to the half bowl, uh, the halftime show at the Super Bowl. Um, it's fascinating to me to consider the source of either the praise or the criticism. You kind of start to understand some things about the makeup of popular opinion in this country when people who are criticizing Shakira and JLo tend to fit certain demographics and people who are rooting for them and supportive of them tend to fit others. And that's not stereotypes and everything, but it kind of is a little bit. As we talk, I think you made a really important distinction a minute ago when you said the people that you deal with in the industry and then the world of your clients. So there's these two worlds. Obviously, in professional development, you have to go to conferences. You have to interact with folks. Uh, you posted something on LinkedIn a month or two ago, I don't remember, um, about some comments you got. And you kind of had to school someone and set them straight and be like, actually, I'm not just the girl who gets coffee. It wasn't literally this, but it's kind of – I'm presenting the dichotomy. I'm not just the girl who gets coffee. I'm the owner of this firm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you often find yourself amongst professionals having to still prove yourself before they'll take you seriously? Is that a, a concurring theme or was this just this one random dude? No, I always have to try extra hard to prove my intelligence to people. It's It takes effort because your your typical man advisor and and the average advisor is in their late 50s if not 60s so not only am i a female i'm technically a millennial and for people who can't see me i'm not 12 uh, millennials, millennials are aren't 12 i mean this is the thing and i keep <laughs> everyone thinks millennials like some 15 year old kid and they'll be like ah oh, millennials i'm like uh no educate yourself <laughs> Anyway, yes, you're not 12. No, I, I am in my 30s. It, it would be where, where my age falls. Uh, but I'm, I'm technically this younger generation. And a 40-year-old advisor is considered a young advisor. So not only am I female, I am also young for, for the industry. And people don't expect it because the, the advisor outings are all the good old boys club. I, I remember I was with my legal team uh, a handful of years ago, and they they had this outing to a men-only golf club. And everyone was super excited about this. And I'm, I am the only female advisor realizing I can't go. They, they literally set up an event that I couldn't even go to because they're just not aware that there are females in this industry. I don't have to deal with that today because I own my own shop. And so really, it's just me interacting with my clients. But when I have to deal with the industry, it, I do see it. And luckily, I don't do that often. Yeah. You know, it's, you, you mentioned the average age. And I am not a math person, but I do know something about averages. And if the average age is in their 50s or 60s, you got to realize that there are as many people above that number as there are below, because that's how averages work. So the, the vast majority of the industry is over the age of 45, uh, just in sheer numbers. Um, how has this created opportunities for you? Because I imagine that while we could talk about these things, and I think we should talk about them through the lens of what's wrong and what needs to you know, be improved and brought into the 21st century and all of that, that's legitimate. But there's also opportunities for being a youngish female owner within this environment. What's positive about it for you? I feel like people actually want my opinion because we're, we'll, we'll be sitting at a conference and all these advisors will be giving their opinions. And, and obviously, the average advisor is 55 years old and a male. 
and they look out in the audience and they see this one young female. And there are uh, uh, other female owners. I, I, I don't think I'm the only one, but being a millennial and a female really puts me in this weird 1% place. And yeah, it's a small number. Well, especially owning an RIA or an investment company. Uh, there's definitely female advisors out there, but but owning your own shop, it, it puts me in a unique place. And so I, I will get called often. They always pick me out and say, well, what's the millennial approach thought process towards this concept? Or what's the female thought process towards this? And so there are times that I get a little bit of special attention because I am different. The thing you said too about the fact that Never mind all of that. What really works is the opportunities and the relationships you can build with clients. I think that's especially interesting because there's a very large segment of the population that has no interest in having a 65-year-old white man be the one telling them how to control their finances. Um, you know, you don't want your response to uh, advice about the most important decisions in your life to be kind of a knee-jerk, okay, boomer. <laughs> You really want to feel like someone understands you. And in order to do that, they need to be somewhat like you. It's the same reason why I think there need to be more people of color in this industry, why we need to break down some of those barriers, because you're going to want to build real relationships with people you can really relate to and who can really relate to you. Um, talk to me a little bit about your clients. You were telling me before we started the broadcast that one of the things you like most is serving people with really unique financial situations, distinct challenges, um, the requiring some more sophisticated uh, approaches, really customized solutions. It's not that your best clients are defined by their age, their socioeconomic status, or things of that nature. It's defined by the situations and the challenges that you're able to step in and help them solve. Can you speak a little bit about this? What what kinds of clients are you talking about? What kinds of these situations are there that you love to roll up your sleeves and get to work to help them with? Well, to speak to your first comment, uh, I love baby boomers because that is my average client. Uh, and and it, they they don't choose me because I look like them. They choose me because I will still be working when they retire. And they kind of want their retirement advisor to be around during that big transition. That's great point. Uh, and I, I can't, I'm baffled by how many people choose someone older than them that will be gone by the time they're going through this huge life transition. Uh, but to speak to the the complexities of clients, the average client uh, does fit averages, right? They have two and a half kids and a white picket fence, and and it is fun to plan for them, but a little bit predictable because you you plan around how are we going to send the kids to college, what are we going to do when you retire, and and. What I love are actually my clients that come at me with something completely unique. I had one client who said, my retirement plan is I'm going to buy a hotel and I'm going to manage this hotel. And because I have the lending side, I can do commercial lending. So we, we did the commercial loan to get her this hotel. And then I have the financial advisor hat and I'm really running through the finances of how is buying a hotel going to fit into your retirement plan? And is this a wise financial decision? So not just you're welcome, here's a loan, but is this a good retirement plan. And so having someone come at me with a unique financial problem that I get to solve, I love solving math problems. And so my favorite clients are the ones who are entrepreneurial and have small businesses and have unique problems and they bring those. I love that example because 
you can't respond to that example with a typical set of financial planning instruments that look at, you know, your lifestyle expenses and come up with a basic kind of budget and say, well, we need this amount of money and things of that nature. Because you have to have a business strategist hat on in order to look at that as well. You actually have to look at the business model of the hotel. You got to think think through the P&L, not just a personal budget. And that's a totally different kind of financial planning. What prepared you for that, uh, if anything? I mean, it may, it may be that you're able to quickly go and, and, and learn, but when did you start to realize this, this niche, this complex problem solving was something that you were good at and that you wanted to find more opportunities to, to engage in? Well, first of all, technically I do run my own business, so I might know a thing or two about running a business. And also I love solving problems and I love learning. And it's just my personality that if you give me something I don't know, the first thing I will tell my clients is I know nothing about hotels and you should probably find someone who does. What's fantastic is my clients love me and they know that I will go the extra mile and learn everything about what it is we're talking about. And so uh, this client in particular, and a lot of my clients say, I trust you. We're in this together. And uh, then I spend my nights and weekends for the next two weeks learning everything I can about the hotel industry. And we put together a strategic plan. Uh, but it's it's really just my personality that I like learning. And I, I spend my nights and weekends learning something new. Yeah, I can tell you have that that drive for for knowledge, not just for success, and they go really well together. You know, it's just, it's interesting to me how much of the kind of bread and butter disciplines and areas of expertise um, are relevant and important. But in a situation like this, you're way beyond 401k considerations. You're way beyond, you know, well, what are we going to do with your Roth IRA at some point when you've reached 59 and a half and kind of, you know, the, the kind of very typical things. You're having to get creative you're having to do some uh, unique forecasting and modeling to try to think through what was really going to serve this client. It, it, that's such a great example. Do you have any other examples of those types of problem-solving situations where, you know, maybe not at that scale, but you need to step in to – and this is – let me preface this by saying I, I'm aware of the fact that this is about – why these things are complex is because they're in, in people's real lives. And people's real lives don't often fit the, the neat – pie chart that you might have seen at some point in your past in a textbook. You've got to get into the world where they have relationships and kids and uh, and those relationships come to an end sometimes and they need to change or they they move or like all the different messy things that happen in somebody's life are the situations you're helping them to plan for and even maximize. So um, can you give us another example that brings that sort of thing to life? Well, I have a million unique and, and perfectly different individual clients. I'm trying to think what might be slightly different and maybe a couple of your, your listeners could relate to. Um, I was talking to a client this week, and she was talking about buying an investment property, you know, looking at maybe a, a VRBO or whatever. Those are really, really exciting right now, those vacation rentals. But also that she needs to save for her kids' college. And these are two things she wants to do. And in her head, it was one or the other. And most advisors are going to say, no, you need to save for your kids' college. And that's the end. We wrote down a really fun math problem and said, if we put, you know, this down payment into this rental property and it can generate this rate of return, the income from the property will 
put money into the kid's college savings account every single month. So we're going to use the income from the rental property to help put money away for the kid's college. And then once college education is over and the income, the rental property is paid off, now you have an income-producing rental property that's going to help you through retirement. So this is something that's much bigger of, you know, save, pay for college, now how do we retire? It was a, it was a piece of the equation that that is going to last them for a lifetime that most advisors just aren't talking about real estate. I'm, I'm struck by the fact, and I'm glad you used that as a second example, because it underlines something that is unique to your approach and your, your vision. Um, you are looking at multifaceted kinds of assets and looking at real estate as an important piece of the portfolio that most advisors might not consider. So the hotel example involves a real estate transaction, not just the business of running the hotel. The VRBO, VBRO, VRBO, the VRBO, similar thing. Uh, what about the, and, and here you are with two companies where you wear your financial planning and asset management hat in one and you wear your mortgage specialist lender hat in the other and you're able to see things through both lenses. Um, why is that so important? And why aren't more advisors doing that same kind of thing? Well, it's it's next to impossible to run them both simultaneously. I, I keep trying to find an example of a company that I could mimic because I feel like I'm confusing everyone. I, my friends are asking me if I change jobs. And I'm like, no, I've had both of these hats for a long time. And it's really hard to articulate it to my audience, what the heck I'm doing, because no one else is doing it. But the only companies that are also doing it are gigantic banks. Right, your your J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, and you know that J.P. Morgan's investments and Chase Mortgage is the mortgage side because they've branded that so well together. But but when you're smaller, like I am, uh, your your Geneva Financial and Pearl Capital Management, people don't realize those go together. M- most financial services firms are smaller than J.P. Morgan Chase, so it's not just <laughs> at that level. Everyone's smaller, <laughs> unless their last name is Schwab or something. I mean, they're all small, right? right? Compared to these behemoths. But you raise such an interesting point. How much of this has to do with market sophistication and awareness amongst your clients? How much of it does circle back to what you said earlier about the regulatory frameworks, where you know, for you to wear both hats, you can't wear them at the same time uh, for some reason. So what needs to happen to help make this easier? If this innovative model of being able to serve both dimensions of a client's portfolio is is going to work, is is the future, what needs to change? Well, there's a huge conflict of interest. And my moral standard and the code of ethics that I've written to to exist amongst the two companies is I'm never going to do a reverse mortgage and put the the proceeds of that or a cash out refinance into an investment account, right? That is a huge conflict of interest that could really screw up a client's portfolio. And Correct. So, because your fee, your percentage would on the one side would be of that of those funds that you are advising them to move over. This makes a lot of sense. And actually, I'm really glad we're talking about this because I I really think that the regulatory stuff is not something to shy away from and compliance is not something to shy away from. It's something we should probably talk about more and make it really clear. So you've got a code of ethics that says we will never do that. We'll never write the reverse mortgage, put the funds into something that we make money on over here. I I won't even do a reverse mortgage. I have just said that is not within my 
my business. And also, we'll never do a cash out refinance and, and put all that money in a stock market and, and risk someone to to lose it all only for an advisor to make more money. So that's just me being proactive and me, my personality of having a very hard line on compliance and Makes what sense. is right. Makes sense. And a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't have that hard line that I do uh, of this is where we're staying. Uh, and then it's it's the fact that I own the investment company. Most people hang their hat with a much bigger company that has huge regulations and huge rules and their compliance team doesn't even want to deal with it. And they say, no, never can you have an OBA, which is outside business activity. So an advisor couldn't even get the knowledge to understand the mortgage industry because they say that's outside business and you're not allowed to have a side hustle when you're an investment advisor. Yeah. When you're captive to one of those firms. When you're with a, a large firm. But it's it's so much worse when you're with a large firm than just you can't have a side hustle. Uh, they own your social media accounts. Correct. So if you leave I your- know because people have asked me, can you help me do this kind of personal storytelling on LinkedIn. Problem is I don't control my LinkedIn. I'm like, well, then I can't help you. But it's even worse because when you leave your job, they take your LinkedIn away from you. And they say, we own your contacts. You can't have it anymore. It's a very unique industry that people don't understand. Uh, also, uh, testimonials are illegal if with big, big financial institutions. So someone writing on your Facebook wall, you did a great job as an investment advisor. That's a huge no-no. We get, we could lose our license. We can get a big slap on the wrist or a fine just because someone wrote a testimonial about us. Not now, but when it, if you were with a large firm. Oh, not not as I currently sit, but I have to regulate that because I am chief compliance officer of my company, so I still am not going to go in that direction. But big firms, it's a huge no-no. Uh, FINRA is a huge no-no. I'm on a, a different regulatory body, but I still stay away from that. So, you know, it's funny because it sounds like we're getting into the weeds with some of the stuff, except for I think we're not. This is really quite central to how you navigate. You, you, you need to be able to serve clients and, and figure out what their interests are and align with them and support them. But at the same time, there are constraints on how you talk about the work that you do. And, and again, I believe those constraints are legitimate because they're there in theory anyway. They're there to protect consumers, not that they always do. Uh, and maybe that's not the best way to do that. But in any case, I think the, the principle of let's not have an exploitative possibility in this relationship is a good principle. <laughs> we can find good ways, to, maybe better ways to execute. Yes. And I also would love anyone who's aspiring to be in the industry to not be afraid of it. You just need to know the rules. And so it is a huge uh, barrier to entry to understand the rules that you're going to navigate that are different than the regular world. But it's a fantastic industry that you actually get to help people every single day. I have people who tell me, Jenna, you've changed my life. My students have gone to Ivy League schools I would have never been able to pay for had I not met you, and I'm going to retire on time. Just the life of my whole entire family has changed because you were in our life. And that is the most rewarding thing in the world and is worth dealing with all of those regulatory hoops. All of that stuff. Well, the, the original question, and you started answering it with the compliance answer, maybe that's the only one. Why don't more people consider real estate as part of a portfolio, but you do, and you're able to navigate this and keeping that hard line and that ethical code is one of the ways that you do that. Um, what are the uh, benefits of this integrated approach for a client? Like, uh, how, obviously, someone who's able to advise them on 
two different sides of a transaction, not, not two sides of the same transaction. We're not talking commercial real estate where some firms are double dipping. Um, but what are the benefits of having an advisor who's capable of helping them navigate both the real estate side of things and the asset management side? It's a huge asset that is usually in everyone's portfolio. Most people own the home that they're going, that they live in. If not the starter home they had before that, that they're now renting out to someone. And you can strategically talk about what are we setting rent, setting rent at, at that starter home that we're now renting out to your nephew who's not paying you enough money. And this is a waste of an asset. And it would be better served in your investment portfolio versus sitting over there in that rental property with your nephew who's not paying any money. And it's just a very real way of talking about what what assets do you have that are going to help you in life and and looking at the whole picture. I, I think that's that's really it is talking about the whole financial portfolio. One of the things that you've spoken about, you've hinted at it several times here in this conversation, and you've also talked to me about it in other contexts, is that the relationship with your clients is one of the most fulfilling things. And that in that relationship, you are not just wearing a, you know, mortgage specialist hat or a financial planner hat. You also end up in their real life becoming something of a coach, a, a, a sounding board, a, a shoulder um, to, to stand with them as they go through things like parenting and divorce and finding their own purpose after retirement, maybe looking at a fourth act of some kind or another as lifespans tend to increase and the ability to make money in interesting ways, even in the golden years as they're, <laughs> I don't think we call them that anymore, but anyway, um, the platinum years, whatever. Um, you're really there to help people build a blueprint for their entire life. Let's talk about that a little bit. I I think this might be the female side of me because I I am nurturing and I love my clients and I want to help them. And maybe that's why I really go with the coach avenue. And I think I need to take some kind of psychology or or social work class on on how to deal with emotions better because I'm I'm a math person and I always find myself in very emotional conversations because money is is such a private topic that no one talks about with their friends or family. And so once you start opening up to your investment advisor, you start feeling vulnerable. You start telling them things no one else knows about them. And then all of a sudden, they're talking about how they think they're going to go through a divorce or how they really don't feel comfortable spending money because their dad was really frugal and always yelled at their their mother every time she spent money. So now they have this emotional burden around spending money or just so many different emotions that are tied to their finances. And so we always end up in tangents. I would say 80% of my meetings are emotional and or not emotional, but about something that is life and not just your investments did X, Y, Z. Someone can read their statement and know what rate of return their investments got. That's not why they're showing up. They're showing up because they want to know how they're going to navigate this divorce that they're up against and how they're going to be able to afford retirement as a single person instead of a married person. And and yes, those are the conversations that I have every day with my clients. This is something that, at least in my observation, um, occurs very differently for women than men, partly because of 
uh, again, I'm generalizing, but the way in which we were raised, the conversations we were allowed to be a part of, the topics that were considered appropriate. Um, you know, there are so many folks as since really, I mean, you mentioned 1945 as a watershed moment, really since then and into, you know, the 60s as the expansion of women in the workforce has increased opportunities for women. Many women today find themselves without this core knowledge. Nobody said to them, hey, this is how this works or here's how that works. Some of these things are taboo. Some of the, you know, no, but you just don't talk about money. You don't talk about sex. You don't talk about parenting unless you're on your moral high horse about any of those three things. Um, and do, do you find that there is a difference between your male clients who are trying to navigate some of these things and your female clients? No, I don't. Actually, my clients, by the time they're a client of mine, which it's usually a long relationship till they get to the point where they're a client, they trust me, I've been managing their money for years, and I, I am their trusted advisor that they come to with issues. And it's neat that I have my male clients who are opening up to me and saying, here's what I'm going through. I A big one with my male clients is once they retire, they don't have that sense of purpose, that, that provider mentality that men want to have a job. And so trying to figure out how to handle that ego piece once you're retired and have purpose in life. And and what you said, the, the fourth act, is that what you called yeah. it? Um, I haven't heard that one yet. But I, I just call it what what's your retirement job or or your retirement hobby and giving them purpose so that they are not going through that emotional depression that happens to a lot of men once they retire. Well, here's and by the way, here's how I think about that. So the first act typically everyone is, you know, through adolescence, young adulthood, everyone has their own set of experiences there. For a lot of folks, it was their their second act was their career, and that ended with retirement, which was the third act, right? Of a of a three act play and kind of a classical since Aristotle and whatnot, right? However, uh, the two major market events that have happened since 2000 and the increasing lifespans of people have made a fourth act kind of necessary where retirement didn't go the way people had thought it would. They saw half of their account balance disappear virtually overnight and they're now working as a greeter at Walmart, which was not on the plan. This was not the situation that they expected to be in. Or maybe they're not doing that, but they are in any case not living the life that they wanted. And there's never been back to what you said about loving to work with boomers, there's never been more opportunities for somebody in their 60s, 70s, 80s to do something meaningful and productive and lucrative uh, than there is right now. But there's no model for that either. Uh, there's, it's not like they can look to Instagram and see shining examples of you know, a 75-year-old entrepreneur who's selling some stuff on Shopify and like having a business and loving their life, although these people do exist. Oh, I have one client who uh, she retired and she needed to work in an $8,000 quilting machine into her retirement plan because she was going to make quilts and she is successfully selling quilts on Etsy and that is her fourth act it is a quilting business. And it's fun to sit down with my, my boomer clients and say, what are you passionate about? What do you want to do during your retirement? And I think that that is a huge piece of the retirement equation that people are missing because the the process is 
broken. It was the retirement process started, you know, a hundred years ago when life expectancy was 67 and you retired at 65 and it was let's let you have your last two years of life in peace. That was that was a retirement. And now we have these 30 year long retirements where people are bored. And so asking what do you want to do? What are you passionate about? And having those conversations is really fun. Yeah. And then to be able to guide them to some of the very real opportunities that may exist and say, you know, you may not you may not realize this, you may not know this, but there are people who have started, uh, you know, a consulting business or mentoring business or who are teaching model trains or, you know, like all the, just so many things, you know, the start of the YouTube channel about ham radio or something. I mean, like there's so many things that people can do. And I, I love that stuff. I could, I could talk about that for ages. You also, speaking of having a multifaceted life, do a lot of philanthropic work. You've been a volunteer on a number of different boards. You've aligned yourself with many different organizations. Can you speak a little bit about some of the work that you've done with Phoenix Children's Hospital, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, the AZ Humane Society, uh, the the Empower Group that you were with? I don't remember the name of it. That's oh, also that was with, called Get Phoenix. No, yeah. that, them. I remember Get Phoenix. But at the time I met you there, you were just leaving a position with another... Oh, uh, with Phoenix Children's Hospital's 40 Under 40. So I was president of that group. It was originally titled Emerging Leaders. So people might, leaders. might know it with both brands. I was president of that for a couple of years. And uh, starting January, I, I'm no longer president. I'm past president, but still very actively involved in that young professional's group that raises money for Phoenix Children's Hospital. So here's the, the real question is, so in the those... Uh, nonprofit arenas and in the work you do with other young and emerging leaders, you're you're dealing with a lot of peers and and also at the same time you we would just had this long conversation about the other end of the age spectrum. So you're kind of seeing those two worlds. What what do you love most about this philanthropic work? What do you get out of it? What are you seeing unfold with the people you're doing the work with? Like what's happening in that world that's interesting and inspiring? What's inspiring is is the end when you get to go around the hospital in Phoenix Children's Hospital and hand out care items to each room and hand a little girl a doll and and see her light up and say thank you and and realize that you're raising money to help uh, people who absolutely need it um, and in the front end on the raising money side of things with like-minded young professionals. These are some of my best friends. And I, I mean, selfishly, I love my friends that I've met through these volunteer groups. And I have other people who are similar, who who have aspiring careers and also want to give back in the community that I would not have met otherwise. And they've turned into great business partners. So some of the CPAs, real estate attorneys that I work with, I've met through these groups. So it, it turned into a great networking opportunity for me as well. You know, it's fascinating to me as we talk at this macro way, as we've somehow found ourselves doing in this conversation about, um, you know, trends and generations and things of that nature that, you know, for for most people in an earlier era, their their professional network was a product of their company. They spent a long time working, again, generalizing here a bit, but a lot of folks spent a lot of years working for the same organization. And they were following that blueprint of, you know, start in the mailroom and work your way up kind of a mentality. 
Um, and it was tied to the way that they also planned for their retirement because defined contribution plans, you know, or, or benefit plans rather, defined benefit plans were the standard of the day. And so if you stuck it out, you were going to end up with, you know, a pension or, or a retirement fund that was provided by that company. And so the people that you know and the people that you interact with are also primarily from that world. As that has all changed, people spend a lot less time working for any one company. Career paths are much more flexible, much more project-based. Uh, it's much more the norm to have one or two-year stints in many different places. Um, not a problem, by the way. I think this is a fascinating and more flexible way of doing it. As the way that you save and plan for the future has changed, that you know those defined benefit programs pretty much don't exist anymore, you've had to be more independently kind of organized, self-organized about it. The way in which you meet and network and build relationships with people has also changed. So you're now using social media and these other kinds of emergent organizations like Get Phoenix Young Professionals, like the 40 Under 40 at Phoenix Children's Hospital. Um, do you find that um, people are embracing this? Is there something missing? I mean, the, the worst... The worst outcome here is people end up lonely, right? They end up somewhere at home. They go home, they don't, have, and then there's Instagram, right? Um, what's happening in these smaller pockets of people's professional and personal life uh, that you think is really positive? Like with these organizations, like we talked about, what's happening there that is nurturing, sustaining, and empowering people as they, as they build a career of sorts and build a life together? Well, I, I think it is what you were alluding to is replacing the the company family that you had. And and to your defined benefit point, your company used to have a retirement plan for you. So you never had to think about it because your pension paid you X amount and you were fine. And now this is something that people have to do for themselves. They have to take their retirement into their own hands because they are not with one company their whole life. Um, and so having peers to talk to, going to groups where you can talk to people, what are you doing? How is it working? It is, it's taking place of that big company that used to take you through life and take care of you. But also everyone, not everyone, but it seems to be very popular uh, a lot along the millennial generation to, to have some kind of entrepreneurial startup company. And if you're a one-man shop, you have no one. You you sit in your office by yourself all day long. So to be able to get out and interact with people and network so that your company can grow is is wildly important. And, and you can find that in a million different ways. You can join a softball league or, or like me, I love giving back to the community. So that's where I find my, my network of people. And are those conversations happening in these uh, in these groups? Are people in other words, I know there's a social dimension that's super important. It's one of the reasons why I get involved in things because, you know, as, as much of a charismatic and outgoing person as I am, I do spend a lot of my time as a hermit. I'm working for my home office, being with my family, working with, you know, my kids, et cetera. Um, so going out to meet people uh, and interact with them, whether I'm giving a talk or going to a, an event of some kind, um, it provides something important that is primarily social. But at the same time, I want to have real conversations and I want to connect with people in a real meaningful way like we did. Are people talking about their money, talking about their work, talking about what's going on in their real life? Uh, or does it tend to be more social? In other words, what's happening? 
Well, it's really where are you showing up to? If you show up to a networking event that is just that, a networking event where you meet someone for the first time, tell them what you do for a living, hand them your business card, no, you're you're not getting at a deeper level. Uh, The reason I like volunteering with a group is you're consistently doing something for a similar cause that you get together periodically and you're working towards this. So you start really getting to know this group of people that you're seeing consistently and you're going to ask them how their new job was and how it's how it's going and how it's coming together. But also you came and spoke to a group of young professionals. That's how I met you. And we went to happy hour after that and we discussed the content you gave us. And we actually had something to talk about that was how to get your LinkedIn profile to a place that you're telling stories and you're not just being the commercial, but you're actually relating to the people that are your audience. Yeah. Let's end on that because I actually wanted to follow up with you. You uh, you messaged me after and said, hey, I'm doing this. I shared something I would normally not have done. You went back into your photo um role or whatever and found a found a photo that was kind of a behind the scenes shot that you would not normally have shared and you wrote a long post to go with it uh, t- telling the truth about how you know I normally try to put my make sure I'm all put together and and yet here's what really happens as I kind of stare at this camera and w- worry about you know I don't remember exactly I'm not doing it justice it's great post go find it on LinkedIn what was the response what was that like for you to kind of take that step and and look at some other ways to share yourself and your life and your work with people. What happened as a result of that experiment? Uh, the experiment went well. People received it well. And I've, I've had people who've come out to me and said, wow, I really related to you in your post about perfection paralysis is, is what I talked about. Because you said it, and then I had heard it from other speakers, and it is totally me, perfection paralysis. I, I, I hate doing video. Uh, Adrian asked me if I wanted to video this, and I, I don't like looking at myself. I, I don't even like listening to myself. Uh, and so, no, I don't want to post anything that is not polished and perfect. And so, therefore, I just don't post much at all. And you said, tell real raw stories. No one cares about your perfect Instagram. They want to know you're human, and they want to relate with you. And I've tried, and it is still very difficult for me. I am not over my... Uh, adverse aversion or just I don't like it. Me, me either, by the way. <laughs> I mean, part of the the spirit and energy I came to that night with was, look, you guys, we got to talk about something that I'm actually struggling with too. So let's make this a very real conversation. I think it was partly uh, why it was so powerful. But I, I really think this there's an opportunity here and I'm glad you embraced it and we're going to continue to talk and and build because for all of us together, as we as we navigate through this complex world, that we're in. The content that's going to serve us most is not the stuff in which we're being perfect. It is the stuff in which we're being brave. People can't relate to perfection anyway. Uh, None of us think we're perfect, and yet we try to pretend that we are so that we impress other people, but nobody's really impressed by perfection because it's not relatable. I was thinking on the way down here today that if you really want to have viral reach, whatever that means, try something brave. Try something that takes courage. Nothing's more contagious than courage. And the truth is, take some guts to share, right? I, I really, I'm as we wrap up this conversation, Jenna, I'm just, I'm inspired by not only your professional expertise, but by your human spirit, by your willingness to at least try <laughs> to to break down some of the 
ways in which we've typically talked about work, we've typically presented ourselves publicly. Um, I think you are providing such a valuable service to your clients by designing multifaceted solutions for real life challenges and unique situations. Uh, as we end the conversation, I'd like to give you the last word. As you look forward here to the future, to the next 12 months or so, what's on the horizon for you that has you kind of lit up and excited? Like what's in your world and whatever whatever way that plays out, professionally, personally, or whatnot, what, what is inspiring and exciting to you about the near future? Well, something that's very exciting is uh, you mentioned Leukemia Lymphoma Society. So they nominated me for one of their, their, their man and woman of the year campaign, which uh, it's a 10-week sprint where I'm going to, my goal is to raise a quarter million dollars to help combat cancer. So that sprint starts mid-March and it ends at the end of May. And so it's a huge goal um, that is in my extracurricular time, which I don't have much of anyways. Uh, so looking forward, that's on the horizon. How the heck am I going to raise a quarter million dollars for cancer research uh, so that's something that's top of mind it, to answer your question. So the Women of the Year Award would go to the individual that raised the most money. Is that the metric? Yes. And in order to raise the most money, you've got to show up in the biggest way and make the biggest impact or reach the most number of people. Boy, if only you knew somebody that uh, was interested in how you use story-driven content to reach the masses and build awareness for things like, oh, I don't know, cancer uh, research and awareness. We might have to chat. We might. Thanks, it's, Adrian. It's, it's so great having <laughs> you here in the studio. As I said, I, I, I'm inspired by your energy, by your capabilities, by what you're out to accomplish in this world. I want more people like you dealing with these challenges. Like, well, who says that compliance has to be a barrier? Let's figure this out. Let's serve people in whatever way we can. Jenna Bianca Villa is owner and wealth advisor with Pearl Capital Management also branch manager and mortgage specialist with Geneva Financial. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. Thank you, Adrian. For all of us here at phx.fm, this is Dr. Adrian McIntyre. We'll see you next time on Valley Business Radio. 